o'clock, and welcome to, to Faith. This is the end of August, and uh, see if you're new, we, sometimes this time of year we have a few new people who are new to the city or students, and we want to greet you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And um, we're, we're finishing a sermon series, a message series on, on, uh, from Ephesians, the fifth chapter. And uh, each day we gather here, it's the Lord's Day, it's Sunday, to... To, to, to celebrate the reconciliation that Jesus Christ purchased for us at the cross. And, and uh, he reconciled us to himself, to our God, and, and to one another. And with all, as with all of our uniqueness and all of our diversity, I was thinking about the diversity of our congregation, and you just look around, the, the different hues that you see. But even in the hearts, there's a lot of differences, a lot of, a lot of diversity of experience and of, and of perspective and of... And, and, and of situations, and, and, and particularly in a message like today on marriage, I, that came to my mind a lot this week as I've been praying for, for us and for you as a congregation. You know, in any church that includes people from various ethnicities and cultural groups, there are always several important, hotly disputed items which can easily cause cultural tensions. Three big ones are worship, food, and family. <laughs> worship. I don't like the songs you do in worship or the way you do the songs. Food. I don't like the food you give at the potlucks. Too much pizza, too much chicken, I don't know, whatever. Something about it. Too many casseroles, whatever. But even more serious is how we do family. How we do family. It seems that that one isn't discussed as much until you come to a passage where you got to talk about it. And um, people seem to have very strong feelings and, and, and preferences and opinions about how, about, about many family related matters. Do I want to get married? Why? Why not? What's the proper way to find a spouse? Romance? Arranged? Online? Is it okay to move in together before marriage to sort things out first? Is the prohibition against cohabitation really from God, or is it just an old traditional thing? What about interracial marriage? Is it right or is it wrong? Should both of us work? If so, who, you or me? Full-time, part-time? What about children? Should we have them? How do we raise them? How do we educate them? Should we disciple them to believe what we believe or let them grow to believe what they want to believe? The questions just continue when it comes to family. And we bring our personal and our cultural pre-understandings to the topic. The scriptures speak directly to some of these things, but, but not all of these uh, 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 matters it speaks directly, to many indirectly. I, I want to focus our thoughts on Ephesians chapter 5. I want to control my thoughts and our thoughts today. God's perfect word. I want to see what it says simply about the responsibilities and the relationship of husband and wife towards one another, which is what that passage focus on, focuses on. Reminder, if we've looked at this verse before, uh, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4, a very important verse. Marriage is to be held in honor, to be esteemed by all. All, that's everybody. 
We want to have a high view of marriage, regardless of, 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 of your marital status, regardless of your, your income status, regardless of your age, regardless of your cultural background. We have a, we have a strong high view of this thing called marriage. If, if you're very aware of urban inner city culture, you, you, you may know that among youth culture, there's a major crisis going on when it comes to marriage. I want to be brutally honest. Uh, the generation of young African Americans have, have basically come to a conclusion that marriage is for white people. I hope you know that. I hope you know that. And I hope it doesn't surprise you. This brings very challenging things to youth ministers and ministers who are ministering in an urban context, challenging pastoral issues in our day. The, but the breakdown in the commitment to marriage is not just in the urban situation. It's all over. In the United States, a, a statistic I saw, 55% of first-time parents between the ages of 28 to 34 are not married. It's over 50%. And that's the United States, not just urban America. And what is sad is that this rejection of marriage is no longer surprising to us, is it? Now, we'll be focused on verses 21 to 33 of Ephesians 5, but I want to start in our reading, I want to back up to a couple of verses to verse 18 to get a running start. It's on, you have it on the, on the screen here. You have the Bible, or you can read along with me as we look at uh, this. And I want you, th- as we read, I want you to think of two hindrances, two hindrances to marital joy and, har- and harmony that we see in this passage. Starting at verse 18. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, <clears throat> but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and his, is himself its Savior. Now, now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. And in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. God's word. Well, did you hear the two hindrances there? Kind of subtle, but kind of obvious. The first, the first hindrance is husbands. The second hindrance is wives. There it is. There are two sinful natures involved in a marriage relationship. And yet there is hope. <laughs> There's hope. Ecclesiastes 4.12 says, A threefold cord is not quickly broken. A cord of three, a threefold cord is not quickly broken. If there's a third one in that relationship, there's, it's not as quickly broken as others might be. My title is simply Marriage, the Profound Mystery. Marriage, the Profound Mystery. See, God who, the God who established marriage, he gives wisdom on how marriages can be Successful and can be a prosperous and blessing for us. God, it got, marriage is God's idea, you see. Now, now the series we've entitled the series "Walking 
as children of the light. Walking, we've talked about walking in love, the first couple of verses. Walking in the light. Walking in wisdom, not as fools. Walking in the spirit. And today it's walking in the home. Walking in your marriages. Where were you on Monday during the great American solar eclipse? Speaking of light. <laughs> as a little bit of, of, of that, that darkness hovered over the city, I was thinking that in terms of the the, the skies, light and dark are not absolute states. There, there, there's a gradual darkening, and there's a grad, in the, in the dusk, there's a gradual light that comes in the morning. And yet, in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul gives us the theological truth that, that they are absolutes. He says, to, to us who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you once walked in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Not that you are in the light, you are, you are light. Now my purpose is that all of us as a church would be totally committed to walking in the light by being a church where we're strengthening our marriages so that, that it might bring harmony and joy to all of us and point others to the Lord Jesus Christ, who's the source of it all. We're going to look at a very simple outline. We're, we're going to look at a general word for everyone. We're going to look at a specific word for, for, for husbands and then a specific word for wives. First is a, a general reminder for everyone. And if, if I could use one word, I would, just, I would use the word believe. Believe in marriage. Believe in marriage. Don't be cynical. Don't be cynical. Believe in marriage. No matter what your state is, continue believing in what this thing that God has created. God wants us all to have the right attitude. The, the, first, the internal structure of this passage is important. Verses 31 and 33, if you look at down, are, are summary verses that Paul has. He's given, talked about wives, husbands, and then there's a summer, summary verses, verses 31, 32, and, and 33. He says, in verse, he says, he, he's, he, he begins citing Genesis. Uh, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. It's quoting from Genesis chapter 2. And then verse 32, he, he links marriage to Christ in the church. He says, this mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ in the church. And then comes a word to husbands. Let each of you love his wife as himself, followed by a word to wives. Let the wife see she respects her husband. That's kind of the, the he's summarizing what he's, his thoughts there in the last couple of verses. I want us to see, first of all, that marriage is grounded in creation. He goes back to Genesis. That's very important. Marriage is grounded in creation. Paul, Paul takes us to Genesis chapter 2, where God established marriage. God, God declared Adam and Eve married, and he blessed them. Now, the story of Adam and Eve, it, you know, it precedes uh, 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 the, the nation of Israel. It precedes the church. It precedes Jesus. That's significant. The significance is not that it's, it's something that's just for believers. It's for people all over the world. As God said to Adam, it's not good that you're alone, to man to be alone. Anthropologists must marvel, I think, at, at, that throughout history, human beings, the, the, we, we have continued to obey God, despite not realizing that we're obeying God. What am I saying? God said, be fruitful and multiply. And, 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 and throughout cultures, they've figured out how to do that, haven't they? <laughs> they have figured that out. It's the one command that people don't have a problem obeying, <laughs> is it? Humans were created with this God-given drive, this God-given uh, uh, motivation. 
God gave it so the human race might grow and continue. That's a real drive. Now, obviously, in, in God's wisdom, not every individual marries. And even not every couple get to bear children. We know that. And, and the, the disappointment there is, is, is strong. And the pain is very real, isn't it? Some of you know that pain. Some of you know that, that, that disappointment. You're, you're truly heroes among us. Because you, your life is, is, is taking on a different kind of a story. But Ephesians 5.31 points us back to Genesis and back to the basics and, and the general thing that, that God has created marriage for the human race to bless individuals. He established it, pronounced it, and he blessed that first marriage. I love the way Arlette read that verse. That's the way it should be read. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. That's the, that's the feel that Adam had. He's to leave, he's to cleave, he's become one flesh. It says he's to leave his home of origin. He didn't even have a home of origin, but God has established what marriage is. And notice in that verse who takes the initiative, who initiates. He's talking to me. You're to leave. Uh, Tim Keller, a lot of my information today is, is, uh, is from Tim Keller's book, Tim and, Tim and Kathy Keller's book. Keller said, overcommitment over to parents is one problem that sinks marriages. Talking about leaving. When you marry, you commit to becoming a new decision-making unit and to developing new patterns and ways of doing things. If you rigidly impose the patterns that you saw in your own family, rather than working together with your spouse to create new ones that fit both of you, you haven't left home yet. Leave. There's a leaving involved. And for parents, like, there's pain sometimes in that leaving, isn't there? But that's but the, the, the natural order of things. That a new family to be set up. Another, the, the old family has to change, leave. And then, then the second word is, is cleave or hold fast to. The old English is cleave. Adam, hold fast or cleave to, to Eve. This points to the strong bond that he's to have with his wife, Eve. It's a strong bond. It's an illustration, if you, if you know anything about electric, electrical wiring, when you connect electrical wiring, there's a couple of options you have when you have wires that you want to connect to get a, a, a closed circuit. Um, you, you, can, you can twist them together and get a good connection that way. And the, thing, good, the good thing about that kind of connection is if you, if you have a good connection, but if you want to disconnect it, you just disconnect it. Okay? But the other way to do it is to have a, a more permanent connection. You can get a soldering iron and, solder, and put some heat to it and put them together, and they're together. And they're almost like they're one, aren't they? Because to, to, to separate them is difficult. Well, we, we, he, he's saying you need to, to bond have a solid bond, not, not just a temporary thing where you can kind of easily get out of it. A strong bond where to get out of it, there's pain because it's supposed to be permanent. Cleave, cleave to her, be committed to her. So Adam needs to be reminded that to have, have his many deep needs met truly by Eve, he must cleave to her, not just hang around with her, not just hook up with her, as many seek to do, and then take off. Uh, Howard Hendricks, the late Howard Hendricks, said um, uh, about the word one flesh, he says, becoming one flesh is not an act, it's a process. Speaking about the, the development of intimacy that we have to have as marriage grows. Leave, clear. This points, this points to the very public covenant, which you talked about a few weeks ago, with a very private consummation, which we talked about a couple weeks ago. Throughout history, throughout 
the world, even in places where there is no revelation of Scripture, that's been the norm, that there's a public saying these two are together. And there's been private consummations. Keller, the colors say that marriage is the union between two people so profound that they virtually become a new single person. The word cleave means to make a binding covenant or contract. And this covenant brings every aspect of two persons' lives together. They essentially merge into a single legal, social, and economic unit. To call the marriage one flesh, then, means that sex is understood as both the sign of that personal legal union and a means to accomplish it. The Bible says don't unite with someone physically unless you are willing to unite with a person emotionally, personally, socially, economically, and legally. Keller says don't become physically naked and vulnerable to the other person without becoming vulnerable in every other way because you have given up your freedom and bound yourself in marriage. Marriage is, it, marriage is, 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 is grounded in, 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 in creation back in Genesis. But also marriage is, is grounded in redemption, in, in the redemption that we have through Jesus Christ. In, in, in the, the first word I want you to see is the word mystery. It's in this text here. You know, the story of redemption in the New Testament begins with a miraculous virgin birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was incarnated for us, wasn't he? He came down from heaven, and Philippians 2 talks about that incarnation. He gave up his glory and became a humble servant. He became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him a great name. Paul said earlier in Ephesians chapter 1, he's far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one that's to come. All things are going to be reconciled, you see, in Jesus Christ who died and rose and is seated on high. And the truth of the gospel is also seen in the next couple chapters of Ephesians that we talked about where we see Jews and Gentiles reconciled, coming together into one united church. And so, so that in Ephesians chapter 3, in, in verses 3 and 6, Paul, Paul calls this unity a mystery. Use that word mystery about this unity. This united church is a picture for the world to see to see God's love, to see God's power. But see, there's another picture of the gospel that Paul wants us to understand. And it's right here. It's right here. The eyes of the watching world need to see our marriages. And they do see our marriages. Two, becoming one flesh. And this is also a picture of the love and the power of God. Such that Paul calls this one a profound mystery. He has an adjective in front of it. Keller says that when God invented marriage, he had the saving work of Christ on his mind. You, you know, the, the, the Bible begins with a marriage in a garden, and the Bible ends with the marriage supper of the Lamb, as we heard about in worship. It ends with the marriage in a garden, ends with marriage in the new Jerusalem for the bride of Christ. Marriage is grounded in redemption. It's a mystery. And then, but also marriage, in marriage there's mutuality. We already looked at, at uh, verses five, uh, 18 and 21. There we have a, a general reminder that the submission of the believers to one another in the New Testament church, the body of Christ, the people of God is expected to be part of our life together. A mutual submission in one sense. In verse 21, as we live out 
the one another's of the New Testament. Look at the, let's look at the passage as we read it there. Speaking to psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, making melody our hearts to the Lord. Love one another, forbear one another, care for one another, pray for one another. One another's of the New Testament. There's many of them. And there's mutuality in, in that. Great, great passages, 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 1 to 2. That, that, that 1 Timothy 5 is a passage about widows. How, how Timothy, this young pastor, is to address widows in his congregation. And I love the way Paul begins that passage. He, 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 he tells uh, Timothy, as a young man, you can have different, let's see the verse, the verse 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 1 to 2. There, there's various relationships you're going to have in the congregation. There it is. He says, don't, you have older men. Don't rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. See the, young, the older man as your father. Or, or, or younger men. See younger men as you do your brother. Or older women. Treat them as you would treat your mother. Or younger women. Treat them as you would treat your sisters in all purity. I, I, I love that verse. Again, the one, the, the, the one another. And Paul trying to show Timothy as a, as a young pastor how he's to address the various age groups in the flock there. But there's an important principle here. You know, when, when Terry and I got married, she didn't stop being my sister. Think about that. She didn't stop being my sister in Christ. She just became more <laughs> than my sister in Christ in unique ways. And, 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 and single people, when you, when you see each other as fellow members of God's family rather than a potential spouse, it changes the way you live. It changes the way you, you have community together as single people. It does. There's an equality as humans created in the image of God, and we're, we're to treat all people with that same equal dignity. At ESV, we see three times the, a word submit. It's there three times in that, in, in that paragraph. Uh, uh, Dr. James Hurley has good comments on that, on that word. He says, submit in verse 21 is to be understood as a general heading indicating that there will be various situations in which certain believers will have to yield to the authority of others. And he, he begins to list three situations. We're not even going to look at chapter 6 where he deals with the last two. We're just going to deal with the, with the marriage here. He, 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 in regards to the, the other occurrences, he says this. The verb submit describes the relation of the church to Christ. The root meaning is to put under or to arrange. And it's used 40 times in the New Testament, it necessarily carries with it the concept of exercising or yielding to authority. It's, it's exercising authority or yielding authority. So, so we can't get around the idea of authority when we see that word. Her, what Hurley is saying is that the, the headship of the husband that Paul talks about is not negated by the mutual submission that we just talked about. It's just a different kind of a submission. As we finish looking at this general teaching that Paul wants us all to understand, let's look at the summary conclusion in verse 33 and then we'll look at the specific instructions because I think there we see the general key to success and the key is love and respect love and respect look at verse 33 again however each let each one of you love his wife as himself let, and let the wife see that she respects her husband love and respect now Paul is not saying that the wife respecting him and the love and the husband uh, loving her are the only things they have to be concerned about. It's not what he's saying. Simply because they are believers. They are joint heirs together. They are participants together in God's saving grace as members of the body of Christ. They have other obligations. Paul doesn't have to say that they are 
responsible to treat one another in a certain way. They know that. The, 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 the wife knows she's also responsible to love her husband. She knows that. And the husband knows he's responsible to respect his wife. He knows that too. So why does he say it? Why does he put that here? Why does he emphasize that? I believe he's reminding each one of them about that responsibility which becomes the most challenging for them. Especially in light of the functional roles in the marriage that he is taught. So let's now let's look at, at these particular responsibilities. Well, let's look at uh, the reminder that he has for husbands. And again, I summarize it with one word. The word is love. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved his church. <clears throat> it's three, three New Testament words for love. Phileo, eros, and agape. Phileo is the brotherly affection, the tender affection, this deep companionship, this friendship. Agape is this has this initiating quality, this sacrificial taking action to, for the better of the other. It's an act of the will. It's not necessarily tied up with emotions. 1 Corinthians 13 is agape. It's about God's love. Because ultimately, God is the one who, who is able to love in that way. He does that through us. And the third one is this word eros we talked about a few weeks ago. This is a romantic attraction that leads to the covenant renewal ceremony that physically says we are one flesh, spiritually, emotionally, as well as physically. Now, a quick note about Eros love. In a healthy marriage, the, the physical renewal of covenant is, is based on grace, God's grace. It is not based on works. You understand the difference between works and grace in, in the covenant, and it'll, it'll transform your marital life. It is, uh, the physical relationship is not a, a reward or a carrot to be given. I trust you with my deepest secrets. It's, it's, it's a mirror, you see, of the unconditional love that God has for us in the gospel. It's the physical reenactment of the unity of two souls. We're taught by our culture that love and romance are all about self-fulfillment and performance. But that's not the intention that God has. Agape, God's love, seeks joy for the other and not for self. And when the believer's relationship of eros under, has an understanding of agape, it goes where God wants it to go. Keller, Keller speaks of this, the, the, the need to, to transition from being in love to love, true love. In fact, he says that there is a thing, that, he says there is a thing such as, as to fall in love, but he says here's what it means, I like this. It, it, it is to look at one another, another person, and get the glimpse of the person that God is creating. Get, see a glimpse of the person God's creating. And to say, I see who God is making you. And it excites me. I want to be part of that. I want to partner with you and God in the journey you're taking to the throne. And when you get there, I will look at your magnificence and say, I always knew you could be like this. I got, got glimpses of it on earth. But now, now, look at you. Love your wives as Christ loved the church. Let's, let's talk about the love of Christ. The love of Christ. We looked at Ephesians 1, and we, one thing that we learned, that he chose us in love. It's a, it's a pursuing love. It's a love that seeks out, a love that pursues, that initiates, that goes after. And Paul tells us as husbands, that's the kind of love we'd have for our wives. 
John 3.16, God so loved the world he gave. It's a pursuing love. It's initiating love. It, the, the love of Christ, it's a sacrificial love. It's a sacrificial love. He, in verse, uh, Ephesians 5, he gave himself for us. A sweet-smelling savor, sacrifice unto God. Sacrificial love. And you remember in John chapter 13, the night before Jesus died, he, he, he washed the feet of the disciples. Remember that? He washed their feet. He did the act of, of, a, of, a, of a slave, a common slave, because none of them were willing to do that when it needed to be done. He gave up his high place to serve. The challenge is to give up our rights and serve for the pleasure and the joy of the other. That's what God calls men to do, calls us to do. The third element of God's love is, 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 this is in the text, it's a sanctifying love, a sanctifying love. Look at the words he uses, sanctifying, cleansing, washing, present without spot or wrinkle, holy, without blemish. That's our task, to bring purity to the, to the relationship, to the, to, the, to the household. Paul then gives a, a, a simple example. He says, a man cares for himself, and we do. We do care for us. Now, some of us don't care enough for ourselves. I mean, some of us are kind of sloppy. But we do, we, we do think, we do, most of us look in a mirror before we leave the house. We do care about ourselves. But Paul says, you, as you care for yourself, care for your wife. Care for your wife. You know, you know we can't sanctify or make someone grow in their faith. We can't do that. That's an important lesson for pastors, for youth ministry, for all of us for husbands and wives. We can't make someone grow, but we can put somebody into the situation where growth can happen. It's almost like a plant, almost like, 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 like agriculture. You can, do, you, can put, you can create the circumstances where growth can happen. Then you gotta pray for some, for some sun and some rain and not too much rain. <laughs> you, you got, you, it's not all up to you. And, but that's the task of, of the husband, to, 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 to create a circumstance where growth and maturity and sanctification can, can, can occur. And then the, the fourth aspect of love that we're going to talk about is, is, is the love of Christ for us. It's a sensitive love, a sensitive love. Christ models that for us. He knows us personally, doesn't he? And he loves us in our own language. He comes to us personally in the way we need to, to, to receive his love. Great verses, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, where, where Peter says, Husbands, love your wives in an understanding way. You gotta understand your wife if you wanna love her. You, don't, you can't love her like you would love somebody else. She's her. <laughs> and love her in the, you, can't lo you can't love her in the way you would love yourself. You, you need to, to, to love her the way she needs to sense and feel love. In a particular, as some have said, this particular love language that she can receive. This, talk, this speaks of sensitivity, of, of understanding her personal needs, of of her longings, nourishing, cherishing are the words that Paul uses, right? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And finally, a reminder for wives. One word, respect. Respect. Before jumping into this very interesting section, let me begin by looking at Titus chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. hope we have that up there. Where, where Paul says to Titus, this young pastor, Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They're to teach what is good. And so train the younger women to love their husbands and children. 
Now, Paul is giving Titus, this young minister that he's discipled, instructions on how the homes at Crete, the, the, the city of Crete, the, town of, the, the, the nation of Crete, that, that little island in the Mediterranean, how, how those homes are to be ordered. And likewise, of course, this instruction for us, church through the ages. Now, Paul tells Titus that the older women have a very important three-fold ministry to younger women in the church. You see that? The ministry is first to be a godly example to younger women. Secondly, it's to teach them what is good. And third, is to train them in how to love their husbands and their children. Now, I, 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 I start here because the things that I have to say would come better from one who's discipling you. And, and I think that's God's pattern. That's God's pattern here. And it, the other thing I want to say is, I don't know where the line of demarcation is between older women and younger women. <laughs> that's for y'all to decide. I firmly believe that pastors are responsible to teach this. But the unfortunate reality is that many women often just tune it out. <laughs> You're a man. Don't tell me how to be a woman or a wife. I, I believe understanding this, God has given the older women an important responsibility in the church of Jesus Christ. Each, of, each one of us has the ability to rationalize things. And one of the rationalizations on this topic is, what does a pastor who's just a man have to say about these matters? That's out there, I know. Well, all I can say is that Paul is not only a man, he's single. Okay? And he's saying a little bit about marriage, isn't he? <laughs> so I trust that God can and will use men, even in a passage talking to, to, to women. But yes, there, there, there's what I would call the dirty word, submit. I'm going to talk about that. We come to look at that dirty word in the modern ears, submit. Uh, 21st century American ears don't like that word. We don't. In verse 33, in fact, Paul summarizes by using the word respect, which is a softer word. We like that word, don't we? I mean, didn't Aretha tell us that's a good word? R-E-S-P-E-C-T. That's a good word, isn't it? Those lyrics put a smile on your face as you think about it. But yeah, respect. You hear in the streets, hey, yo, don't be dissing me. Diss? What's a diss? It's a disrespect. Don't be diss me. Respect. Everybody wants respect. More than just a little, by the way. Rita knows that too. But, 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 but Paul says, women submit to your husband, to your own husbands. Husband is the head of a wife. And, and that is what we read from Paul in God's word. And these phrases are, again, not very popular in our day. Why is submit a dirty word to our ears? I want to talk about that for just a second. One, it's, there's the history of male abuse. We know that. That continues even in our generation. We could go on and on and talk about that. Abuse by men who rationalize their actions with words such as this word submit has probably affected many of us. So this teaching is certainly very, very hard. Second, this has wrongly been applied to society at large. As if God has problems with women using their leadership gifts in society. 
the, the, the clear truths of male headship in the home that Paul's talking about here and, and oversight and authority in the church have nothing to do with politics or the business world at all, in my thinking, as I understand God's word. This has been wrongly used to infer that there is a superiority of men over women, that we're, we're smarter or wiser than women. Well, no, <laughs> that, that's not true. <laughs> the difference is functional that Paul speaks of, and it has nothing to do with mental capacity or ability to perform duties. It never gives that rationale. And also, and I think this is the, 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 the biggest reason why I think we don't like the idea of when we just see the word submit, and this is for all of us, because we're sinners. <laughs> and what is sin? Sin is the refusal to submit to God. It's rejecting God's will, rejecting his will, rejecting his word, rejecting his ways, rejecting his son. It's rejection. It's it's lack of not wanting to submit. In Romans chapter 10, Paul says of his, of his Jewish kin that they were seeking to establish a righteousness of their own. They did not submit to God's righteousness. He used the word submit there. And, and that's, our, that's our predicament. Jew, Gentile, black, white, male, female. We, we are sinners and we don't want to submit. I love Psalm 2 that, that pictures that, the second psalm. Paul knows that that, that that was true in his days before he came to Christ. And it's true for you, it's true for me. We're in Adam, we, we, are, we are creatures of Adam, we, are, we still have that Adamic nature, and we don't want to submit to the righteousness of God. And that's what sin is by nature, that's who we are. James exhorts us, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves to God. Submit yourself to God. Children are, are great windows into the human heart. A few, few months ago, we were watching one of my grand... I can't remember which, which grand... I think it was... I can't remember which grandchild it was. I don't want to, don't want to go into there. But, but I, was just, I have to have responsibility of watching her. And we have, there's, a, there's a, a gate, of course, where to, keep, to make sure she didn't go down the steps, okay? Well, she was learning how to crawl, okay? And she was, she was excited about learning how to crawl. So she's crawling. She took like three steps, th three crawls, and then she turned around and looked at me. Because she realized, as she took those first few steps, that the gate wasn't there. She looked back, and then she started going real fast <laughs> to see if she could get there before I stopped her. She knew that she was not to go beyond a certain point, but she wanted to see if she can get to that certain point before. So it was a little, little, little thing that happened there, but it reminded us that none of us, in our, in our instinct, in our nature, we don't want to submit to the authorities around us. That's who we are. And no one taught her how to do that. She can't even talk. At that point, she couldn't even talk. But she knew how to test authority. Submit. You know, actually, submission can be a beautiful word when we think about it. Jesus submitted to the Father. Think about it. Jesus Christ in the Holy Trinity submitted to the Father. It's a perfect example of submission right there in the gospel. We believe that, that Jesus and the Father and the Holy Spirit are, are one God in three persons. So there is equality. The Father is not more divine than the Son. No. Yet Scripture tells us that in eternity past, the Son agreed to take a lesser role, to humble himself, become obedient to death, even death on a cross. He submitted to his Father's will, modeling the dignity of submission. And the other thing that why, why submission is a good word, because 
when we got saved, if we got saved, we submitted to God. We submitted to him. We submitted to Christ as our Lord. When we were converted, we put our trust in him. By faith, we submit our wills, our, our futures, our eternal souls to him. You see, our problem is that when we see the word submit, we quickly think of inferiority. No, that's unfortunate. Didn't Jesus himself serve? Didn't he become a slave for us? There's dignity in coming under and taking the place of sacrificial service. So why does Paul use that word then? We, we get a clue by glancing back at the garden. God is guarding three things. He's guarding the, the, the passivity of males, the, the male passivity that's there after the fall. It's there as the fall occurs in Genesis chapter 3. And, and also, there's a power struggle in Genesis chapter 3 and 4. Look at those, those the chapter 3 in particular. A power struggle that, 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 that's, that's part of the, the impact or the consequences of the fall. And so someone has to be the head. And God says, Adam, you're the head. So how does Paul use this word? How does he use the word? Notice carefully, submission to your own husband. Not anybody else's. Not everybody else's. He says this, as to the Lord. See how he qualifies it? As to the Lord. You know, it's, it's very unpopular, very tough words, aren't they? But that's what Paul said on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and that's what we have to, 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 to grapple with. You, you have the Spirit, if you have the Spirit, understand what he says here. He's not talking about abusive headship where the wife is commanded to follow the husband at any cost. No, none of us are told to do that. It's in the Lord. The text says, as to the Lord, when he's walking in fellowship with God and seeking to live for Christ and love her. Now, I want to give a, a brief, a cross, what I call a cross-cultural caution. I know for a fact that if I say to a congregation full of people who are the majority culture, that's white people, if I can use that phrase. Okay. If I, if, I, if I say men need to be strong and lead, there'll be a certain reaction, a certain pushback. But, but if I were talking to a minority congregation, not just African American, but maybe other minority people in our country, and I say men need to be strong and lead, many of the sisters would say, amen, preach it. Like some of you are nodding your head. They say, I, I am tired of trying to be both the mother and father to my kids. I'm tired of being a sole provider. In that kind of congregation, there'd be a lot of nudging. Wake up, brother. So sadly, Racism has damaged us all. We watched a, a few weeks ago the movie, the Nat Turner story, The Birth of a Nation, the second Birth of a Nation movie. The, the, the master wanted uh, the slave's wife for the night because he was entertaining some friends, and one of his friends wanted her. He'd had a few too many drinks, and it was a beautiful black woman, and he wanted her. Her husband was ready to fight, but they all knew that, that would mean death. So he had to watch his wife go to the, the master's friend for a couple of hours. 
And that scene reminds us that there are many reasons for the passivity and dysfunction among black males in our society. It still hampers us to some degree. So please, please beware of the different understandings that other cultures have when we talk about family and, and marriage. Submission, male headship mean different things in different cultures. And our church being so diverse, so international, just be sensitive to each other. We err by making assumptions that there is common understanding of these very culturally determined values that we hold so dearly. Keller says this, reflecting on, he's reflecting on, on, on Philippians 2. He says, in Jesus we see all the authoritarianism of authority laid to rest. And we see all the humility of submission glorified. Rather than demeaning Christ, his submission leads to his ultimate glorification. Both women and men get to play the Jesus role in marriage. Jesus in his sacrificial authority. Jesus in his sacrificial servanthood. By accepting our gender roles and operating within them, we are able to demonstrate to the world concepts that are so counterintuitive as to be completely unintelligible unless they are lived out by men and women in Christian marriages. Keller's exactly right there. See, God, God has established marriage. He gives us wisdom on how we might experience mutual joy and harmony. Simple application for all of us, whether married or not, whether single or married. How's your love life? How's your love life? Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. How's your love life? How's your love for your neighbor? How's your love for your brother and sister? How's your love for your spouse? How's your love for God? Maybe God wants us in response to just repent. Maybe it's to wait and to trust. Maybe it's, it's to, to initiate more or initiate less. I don't know what the Holy Spirit says to you, but I know all of us are to walk as children of light. Monday we had that solar eclipse, and uh, everybody was looking up for about four minutes, weren't they? I, I, know, I bet half of you were. We don't, we don't go for sure hands. I, I have to admit, I was. Craig had the glasses. He said, here, look at it. We were looked up in the sky right over there. It was, you know, it was, it was, everybody was looking up. Amazing. It was amazing the comments and the tears and the exultation of people. Some people had almost a religious experience. Oh, it was, it was wonderful. And, and, and yeah, but, you know, this Bible talks about worshiping uh, the creator, not, not what was created. And, and sometimes I wonder about the, some of the over-the-top exclamations that I heard. But you know what? The heavens declare the glory of God, and yes, there's glory in what we saw. There's glory there. God has put another universal thing in the world that points to his glory. And he invites us, invites everyone to gaze, to gaze. It's Christian marriage. He created the simplicity and yet the wonder of it. The wonder of boy meets girl, of man pursues woman. Complimenting each other, yet very similar. And we should pray that as the world sees our marriages, they say, that's the way it should be. 
that they have the sense of awe and wonder that they're beholding something that's amazing and wonderful. You see, we are children of light. <laughs> and, 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 and we're told by one who is the light of the world, let your light so shine before men and women that they will see your good works. They'll see your great marriages. And give glory to you? No. Give glory to your Father who's in heaven. God wants us to have the kind of joyful, harmonious marriages that make people look and stop and realize that it is possible for two people who are sinners to have an enduring, blessed, successful relationship, even in a sin-cursed, syndicated world. Our marriages are not just for our joy, folks. We're sign points pointing to something. We're pointing to what, what Paul called simply a profound mystery. Let's pray. Well, there's so much here about marriage 